You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined neither by Sean nor Rick. I am joined instead by Matthew Meeple of One More Turn Games. He is the designer and publisher of Ascendancy, and he is an awesome human being overall with an excellent story to tell. Matthew, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I rarely miss an episode of Crowdfunding Nerd, so I'm really happy and excited to be here. Full disclosure, I am one of your customers, but I'm still going to say nice things about what you guys do. So yes, yes, I love that. And to get kind of a frame of, of this conversation, what I had kind of envisioned talking about, so you have designed Ascendance, you've worked on it for five years. You're live on Kickstarter right now, and it's going very, very well. It serves as an excellent case study for a very first-time designer that wants to explode and have more than $300,000 in sales, uh, which is just an incredible achievement. And so I wanted to really kind of revisit the concept of the virtuous cycle. Every so often, I, I talk about it, I mention it, but I have not actually had an episode that featured the virtuous cycle since episode 14, which is at the moment like hundred and 25 episodes ago or more. So, you know, if you haven't, if if you're listening to this and you haven't heard The Virtuous Cycle, episode 14, that is the most important episode that we as a podcast have ever recorded because, you know, and and in this episode today, we're really going to revisit those building blocks and steps with a firsthand case study of ascendancy and how Matthew, you know, went from idea to implementing the various elements to funding over $300,000 on Kickstarter, maybe 400k by the end of his 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 project you know so first i guess matt matthew tell us about who you are what ascendancy is and and that sort of thing if we go way back my gaming journey started when i was three years old back in the early 80s with an atari 2600 and television handy computer that that kind of stuff then in the late 80s i got into the nes sega genesis turbo graphics 16 you know all the awesome stuff and i got into dungeons and dragons like everybody and I became a, a dungeon master because nobody else wanted to do it. But it was fun to make my own little worlds, torture my friends. Um, but then in the 90s, it, I was more into PC gaming and um, got into uh, you know downloading shareware over, over a modem and all yep. that stuff. Yep. So, so we go pretty far back as far as gaming. And then things, you know, they, they changed. Like we had like the golden age of MMOs, like in the yep. 90s, you know, we had... Uh, I played a lot of World of Warcraft, as I know you have, uh, Andrew, yep. Anarchy Online. And these were like the most popular games in the world for a long time. So uh, I was I was really influenced by by these kind of games. Um, and a lot of that went into Ascendancy. Anyway, all of this is a long way to say that when I decided to throw my hat into the ring for game design, I had a lifetime of experience to draw upon, even though I had never published a game beforehand. As far as like getting started, I think the best thing is, is to just start whenever you can. Nike has this slogan, just do it. I feel like it's the greatest motivational slogan of all time because it's true. I think if you just start today, there's never a better time. So that was like on the gaming side of my background. And on the business side, I have started a few small businesses. One of them I even sold for for a small exit, uh, emphasis on small because it definitely wasn't enough of a payday to quit uh, working a full-time job. So the goal for for this project uh, business-wise was how can I make it so undeniable that I can uh, eventually quit my day job and have like a real publishing company. So, you know, my, my dream was to, to be able to, to afford to live in a place like San Diego someday with, with an ocean breeze, <laughs> and better schools for the kids and uh, 
but to get there, you know, the, the project work really, really has to be undeniable. So that, yeah. that's, that's what I'm aiming for. I, I really like that word undeniable. In fact, um, you know what it reminds me of is I asked my, uh, so I, uh, I'm a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt. And when I was a brown belt, I, I, I was a brown belt for over five years. I, I had uh, moved gyms. I found, uh, you know, a, a great gym with a third degree black belt instructor that was super good, former professional fighter and in the lineage of Hicks and Gracie, which is a, uh, you know, a big name in the jujitsu world. And so I started training there and, you know, for a really long time and they never promoted me. And mm-hmm. I asked like, what, what do I need to do? You know, because I can't just go in as a brown belt and then some, you know, this guy who has never given a black belt out before has, is, he's not just going to hand me a black belt. I need to get to know him. He needs to get to know me and, and all of that. And I asked him like, what do I need to do in order to like get a black belt from you? Which is not something you'd normally ask, uh, you know, an instructor, but you know, I just, I need to get to know him. And he said, make it undeniable, make your, that you deserve this belt. Absolutely undeniable. And it took me, you know, from the time that I started, it was mid, you know, about two years into my brown belt, took me three years of training there. And, uh, you know, till I finally earned that belt in his eyes. And um, it was a, a really kind of a, a key moment in my life of like, if I, you know, in, in business, if you make the product absolutely fantastic and undeniably great, then, you know, there's just, it's just going to be on another level. And I think, I really think that's what ascendancy is. It is, it kind of, you know, in a way you could talk a little, if, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about like how the game works, it reminds me a little bit of Brotherwise Games Call to Adventure, you know, where you have like a, a character that you, you know, that has like a childhood, a background and that you kind of go through this game and you have a story to tell at the end. Well, ascendancy is is like that on steroids. And would you mind telling a little bit about that? Like why, first of all, was this, why did you do this? What is it? And, you know, how how were you determined to innovate, to make it undeniable, I guess? Yeah. So ascendancy uh, was an idea I've had kicking around in my head for as long as I can remember. And it really is the culmination of all of my lifetime of, of playing awesome games. So I the, the concept was literally, what if I took all the most awesome parts of every game and just, you know, bashed them all together into one epic game? And, and it was kind of a stupid idea because you end up with a soup yeah. that just doesn't work. Um, so as a result, you know, it was a huge challenge to make this. It took me over five years to get it in shape to where it is now. I had a ton of missteps along the way. I had to throw out the entire game at least four times and rebuild it. From, oh, from scratch, right? Because things just weren't working out. I had I had to commit to a process to get it to that point because working in fits and starts, uh, it, it never would have gotten finished. So as a game, a lot of process went into getting it to this point. And uh, for the people who don't know, Ascendancy is a worker placement meets 4X strategy board game. I believe it's the world's first. And it really just borrows a lot of interesting mechanics, puts them all together. If, if I think back to experiences I had playing uh, video games, like there was a character creation, or if they asked you a series of questions, and what would you have done in, in this situation? Some of the old uh, JRPGs did things like this. Mm-hmm. I thought, oh, wouldn't it be cool to have something like that in a game where you have some kind of backstory and you can kind of choose 
your, your character. Wouldn't it be really cool if uh, you had a side view combat system, like in Final Fantasy, where you can choose your abilities in either an MMO style or maybe MOBA style, where you kind of push a button and then the ability resolves. So I was like, wouldn't that be cool if you had that in a, in a board game? But then implementing it, I needed to also interject some of the tried and true mechanics at board games that, that just work because you're, you're very much limited by the fact that you're moving cardboard and components around the table. You have a lot of limitations in a board game that you just don't have in the video game world. So mm -hmm. translating that, as you know, Andrew, is, is a huge part of, of developing. and um, but Kind of making it feel the same. Yeah. Yeah. So finding creative ways to get around those limitations was a big part of, of developing it. it. It's a big game. There's a lot going on. And uh, it, it's probably not for everybody, but um, people who, who do like this kind of thing, they, they responded really well to it. So I, I tried to really pick a very specific audience and really give them the kitchen sink, absolutely everything that you could possibly want in an old school feel, kind of video game inspired, epic scope, fantasy board game. Uh, that, that's what Ascendancy is. That's fantastic. And in, in, in a way, in so many ways, I feel like you and I are kindred spirits in the way that we've designed because Deliverance was kind of my answer to a similar challenge or a similar question that, that I, I tried to, well, maybe a similar puzzle I tried to solve is like, I was a hardcore MMO gamer. I, you know, League of Legends and other MOBAs like Dota. I, I love games like that. And so I wanted to make a game that just gave me everything that I wanted and was not non-compromising and undeniably awesome in my genre which was this angels demons and saints type uh, type experience and over the course of my development i had to i mean there was a lot that you learn when you're developing a game that you want to see like it doesn't feel right and i think that's actually where the experience like you talking about your your seasoned background as a gamer I think that it's super relevant and you really get a leg up on people that don't have that seasoned background because you know what is great. You might not know what makes a board game great if you've never designed a board game, but you know what feels good because you've had those moments. Like I, I still remember back way back in the day in World of Warcraft, like when my guild finally downed Ragnaros for the first time in mm. Molten Core, there was mm. the sound, the sound that erupted on voice chat. <laughs> unlike anything else I've ever, ever heard, like you could go to a Taylor Swift concert and it wouldn't be as loud as, <laughs> as what I experienced in that moment. And yeah. it just left this impression on me. Like I want the feeling to be like that, you know, the epic feeling of we did it to be this huge, huge, you know, experience on its own. And how do you translate that into a board game? Well, you have to try and fail and, you know, reiterate and whatnot. But as long as you know the feeling that you're going for, you can make something that is really incredible. And I think Ascendancy definitely has the feel of just this epic, like you're basically making an, a hugely epic character, developing a house and being awesome, like high customization and all that. What was the feeling that you were going for? When you design progression yeah progression is my favorite thing to experience in a game so i wanted to give you the feeling of you can upgrade everything everything that starts out weak can get more powerful right when you take that to me that's the hero's journey it's it's starting from someone who's kind of unsure of themselves you don't really know what you're doing you're, you're getting your ass kicked by by these like low level creatures and then you get more powerful you get stronger you learn how to do it you adapt like this is life like this is really the story 
I think, uh, of every young man in the world that you're trying to overcome, you're trying to become something. And I think video games really tap deeply into this, this experience that we all have. So I wanted the game to really focus on that journey. So everything, almost everything in Ascendancy, you can upgrade, you can make more powerful, gets bigger, gets cooler, gets more impressive. Part of my challenge was, and ties directly to the game, is I've always had a really strong sense of imposter syndrome in everything that I do. Anytime I had maybe a mechanic that wasn't really working out or the combat or I didn't, things just weren't gelling, I, I would get these voices in my head like, like uh, you're not a real game designer, right? <laughs> or like, uh, who, who are you trying to fool yourself? Like, there, like there's people out, like there's a guy who designed you know, through the ages or, or like these games that are just incredible, that are so, that are so great. And the bar is so incredibly high these days for games. Like, they're just so good now. So, so to compete at this level, to make something that's semi-genre defining, which I'm trying to do with Ascendancy, I, I feel like I've always had this strong imposter syndrome and fighting through that, powering through that and getting to the point where it's undeniable, where I've ticked all the boxes, the visuals, the marketing, the gameplay, the design, the characters, the lore, like everything has to be on point. That's the only way you can get to undeniable. So that, that's what I tried to focus on. I understand very much how uh, that imposter syndrome feels. And I think a lot of our listeners do too, because we all kind of feel like even if on the front end, you have this really amazing product. I mean, uh, I, you know, for deliverance, we raised over 300K and we're now delivering. And it's it's really the probably the coolest moment for me, other than funding $141,000 on the first day was you know just there was that crazy going down a roller coaster on the first day and it was great and all this work finally paid off and people saw it and you know whatever and i know you actually had a very similar experience over 900 backers hundred forty thousand dollars or so raised on the first day the the best moment for me in my journey has been people actually receiving the game and it getting super high praise and you know everybody's talking about how much they love it and whatnot that feels really good but Without those two moments, those two moments in time, they're blips in time in, for me, a seven-year journey. That is so hard to make that journey. And you've journeyed five years making this game. That's how long I did before I hit Kickstarter. And so you have gone through all the phases of, of you know, you and I both really have of like your friends playing it and them saying, oh yeah, that's pretty good, you know? And, like, <laughs> like that's that's not the reaction i'm looking for yeah. you know it's like and then knowing you know i don't know if you've ever had a moment like this where you're designing your game or i'm sorry you're showing your game off to a friend or to uh you know at a convention or something like that and then you're at the end of the game they're sitting across the table from you and they start talking to you and telling you what you need to do and then the color drains out of your face and you realize that they're right and it's going to require an entire engine rebuild of your game where every single card doesn't work anymore. And you know, I remember for me, like the dice in deliverance, we used to roll dice to see if, uh, if you would, um, take damage or, or deal damage or not, you know, if you crit, if you hit, or if you missed, it was on a dice roll. And we ended up, I ended up realizing that we needed to change that system. And everything in our game was based on that probability of maybe that you'll miss. Right. And it was just, it was, it represented, I mean, I didn't, I retooled the game and it took four months of time before I could play and play it again. Right. Oh, yeah. Have you had moments like that? I've had, I've had several. Yeah. I've had to throw out the whole game four times, but I 
I know that when you have that feeling that this is such an overwhelming task that now I have to do, that feeling is like the exact thing that, that you need to do that that's going to make it undeniable. That's going to make it mm-hmm. what it needs to be, right? That feeling, because you know, it's such a terrible feeling that now you have all this work in front of you and it sucks, <laughs> but you got to do it. Like that feeling is important to listen to it and respect it and say, you got me like, yeah, it, you're right. Like it does need this and mm-hmm. it's going to suck to rebuild it, but it is what it is. Yeah. Just, uh, it's like, how do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time, <laughs> right? Yeah. And I feel like the uh, the journey. You know, one of the things in in the development of of deliverance, when I would take it to, uh, I remember the worst feedback. The feedback I hated was good feedback from something that already changed. It's already mm-hmm. I've already made this change, but the prototype isn't updated to reflect that. And mm-hmm. now they're playing a game saying, "Oh, you should you know do this thing." And it's like <laughs> I have done the thing, if- <laughs> right? If it was just updated in the prototype, what feedback would you be giving me instead? You oh, know, like, yeah. uh, have you it's experienced that too? Of course. Yeah, of course. And here's the thing is, is when, when you're making a bespoke prototype printing at home, which I've done a million of, you, you can't update it fast enough for the, for the play tests. And if it takes you, it takes me three days to make a, a self-made prototype copy of the game and, and I can't do anything else until it's done. So Tabletop simulator is such a godsend and I every ounce of my being resisted learning that program and figuring out how to do it because it, 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 I just had so many other things I wanted to focus on. I wanted to focus on the game, but thank God I did because when you have a big game, as you know, you just can't keep making new versions. You, tabletop simulator makes it, makes it so much faster to iterate and play test and rebalance and do everything. So it's such an important tool. If you have a smaller game, forget everything I'm saying. You, you could probably do it yourself. When you have a lot of interaction, a lot of different moving pieces, balance issues, I, I think it's such an invaluable tool that you become more like a developer in the sense that yeah, you can make a few changes there, test them out very quickly without having to deal with the physical world mm-hmm. and, and all the, the, the difficulties there. Yeah, I, I actually find the same is true for me. Tabletop Simulator changed everything because actually there was a story that I have. I don't know if you have a similar one, but... Um, I had a, uh, so I, I'm still a part of a, the same business networking group. We had a printer in the group and I, you know, I market our internet marketing services and stuff. This person was a, a local printer and I asked them to help me print deliverance because I'm just totally wet behind the ears. It's two years in and I've got this prototype I want to make. I want to make it look nice. I wanted to make it look nice, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but I had them print what amounts to about 10 copies of the game. And, uh, you know, they printed all the cards, cut them round the rounded the corners and whatnot. I took, a, I put, I put together, you know, and I got other things from the game crafter. I had tokens printed out and whatever and, and punched out. I went through all that effort of like taking one set of tokens, wiping all the ash off the game crafters, laser cut things so that people's hands wouldn't get all ashy. And I took it to an unpub thinking that I'm going to send these other nine copies out and uh, do blind play testing and that kind of thing. And I got all this feedback at the Unpub that completely invalidated every single card that I had printed. And it was about $600 that I, that I spent. And I realized like, holy cow, I, you just can't, I can't iterate like this. Did you ever, did you, did you, did that happen to you? Anything like that happened to you before you discovered Tabletop? Yeah, every, I mean, I, I, look, I brought my game to Gen Con in 2018, five years ago, the first prototype. 
And the first feedback I got was this wind condition, it's not possible to do it. So <laughs> talking about embarrassing, right? You, you, my game was literally not playable. Uh, and, and I just flew, you know, a thousand miles, paid, you know, thousands of dollars to be at this event and people couldn't even play the game. It, this was, was a horrible feeling. And, you know, that said, uh, the other feedback I got was encouraging enough to keep going. And when people still said they had fun and everything else was pretty good, despite the fact they couldn't actually win the game, <laughs> then I knew I was onto something. But yeah, it has happened to me for sure. That's awesome. It's like a dog with a bone. You know, I think kind of going back to the imposter syndrome thing, I, I felt for me, one thing that really helped me move forward despite my imposter syndrome of so many other people are much more qualified. They have to be much more qualified. I actually think in your case, for your game, and in my case, for my game, there may be nobody else in the world better qualified for you to design ascendancy or for me to have designed deliverance. It just was the thing that we had the vision. We were like dogs with bones. We knew what we wanted. We knew we just wanted to make the game that we wanted to play or to see exist in the world. And I think a lot of other people are the same way. And despite the imposter syndrome, it's like, I feel like one way to kind of help deal with the imposter syndrome is to focus on a task. It's like, I, I feel like a total fraud, but I'm just, all that matters is making the next iteration of the prototype. I, I love that point that you are the only person who can make, you know, your, your creative work. I think it's so true that there's a band I really love from, from England called the Stone Roses. They're not very popular in the US, but they have a singer, I think his name's Ian Brown. And a lot of people say he can't sing, but the reason their their music is so incredible to me and all the fans is nobody else could write those lyrics or, or, or do it in, in that way. It, it, it's not technically right the, the greatest uh, performing, you might say, but but they are literally the only people who, who can make that particular art and, and those particular records that they made. And yeah, I totally agree that for creative projects, you know, it's so important to follow your vision and your voice, and most importantly, never compromise on it. Because the moment you take a shortcut, whatever it is, you have diminished what you're doing and what, how other people are going to experience it. Um, mm -hmm. And that, you know, I think it can make sense to, to sell an idea to a publisher if, um, you know, if, if, if you're trying to do something that maybe you don't, you don't have that necessarily, it, it's, it's not mission critical to your life. Essentially was that to me. So it, it, it I, I was not able to, to sell it to somebody else to, to bring it to fruition. And, and I heard you express the same thing about deliverance and, and I totally get that. Yeah. And I, when something's your baby, um, you, you have to see it through to the end because that's the only way it, it's going to be yours and be ultimately how you envision it to be. Right. So let's, let's, um, I, w I really would love to continue talking about the, just the development and the struggle that you went through because there's so much meat in there to unpack. And I think it might be fun to have you back on to just talk about development and, and struggling through, but I'd really like to get into the marketing of ascendancy and like, because you've had a number of experiences. So you, we, uh, have been able to do uh, pre-marketing work for you and, and whatnot. Um, I know you've worked with other agencies or other agents, people that have helped you. And you said one thing to me, which I just would love you to expand on is that you said you're the poster child for the virtuous cycle. Yes. And I'd love you to kind of go into what is the virtuous cycle to you and what, how, you know, what did you do for marketing? Like, how did you build up? What were the results of your marketing and before you launched? So there... I, I break down this project into three main pillars of, uh, of work. And 
I, one is the visuals, the other is the game design itself, and the third is the marketing. So I'll start with the marketing because you, you brought it up. And the marketing, to me, the, the virtuous cycle takes an incredibly complicated and overwhelming task, which is board game marketing, and just brings order to what was previously total chaos in my head, and I'm sure in a lot of first-time publishers' minds, right? Some people call it building a tribe or, or, or whatever, but it, it's really just finding your people, saying, hey, I've got this cool thing, and just kind of starting that, that journey together with them and doing right by them and communicating with them, knowing where to find them and, um, and retaining them. And my uh, original people who play tested with me back in 2018 at, at that uh, terrible Gen Con event, a lot of them are still with me. And uh, the Virtuous Cycle framework, capturing people, putting them into a database and communicating with them regularly and reinforcing that over time just made a lot of sense to me. I started really early. Um, I, I heard your podcast 15 or whatever it was, right, where you kind of explained it. And you, you could probably explain the details of it better than I can. But um, I, I hope I encapsulated kind of, kind of what, what the core of it is. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that the uh, what I love to understand, and I even do this with in, in deliverance with my rules, how I, players will ask me a question. And oftentimes I will turn it around and say, well, how would you interpret this text, you know, given what you understand about the game? And they'll say, well, I would do it this way. It's like, all right, let's do it that way. And, you know, we'll see if it breaks the game or what. In the same way, this lesson that I feel like we've learned and been able to impart of the virtuous cycle, the, the system of marketing behind, you know, your or rather the system that captures the, the results of, of your marketing efforts and kind of banks them for you to leverage later. It, you know, it, it includes a couple of essential building blocks, but you really nailed it. I mean, it's you, you bring in somebody that maybe was like a cold lead, we'll say somebody that was interested in the idea of the, of the game or talked to you at a convention or saw it online or, or something. And it really uh, seeks to communicate with that person and warm them up into somebody who is like super duper excited for the launch of your game that does not care at all what other projects are launching, but needs to back yours, like all in, you know? And so I think that that is, that's like the goal of the system. And then the building blocks of the system are, you know, something else entirely. And actually, if, you know, if you, if you wanted to learn in detail, we've got a, uh, we'll, we'll include in the show notes for everybody in this podcast, a link to a written virtuous cycle kind of breakdown but then also we have the podcast. If you go to crowdfundingnerds.com slash episode 14, you'll be able to find it there and listen to kind of the, the general breakdown. But the, um, the general idea is that you have a landing page, you have an email list, and you have a community. And each of those work together in tandem to kind of bring somebody in to tell them what your product is and communicate with them across multiple different mediums at the same time. So like my once a month email that I send is, I mean, if I send an email every day, I would really upset people and they would unsubscribe. But if I get them in my Facebook group, I'm able to now talk to them once a week without any problem. They, they don't get annoyed there and I can send an email and then I get them on my discord server. They'll get notifications whenever I do like an everyone update or whatever, you know, maybe that's once a week too. Or, you know, once every day they, they check in and we talk and about stuff. But the general idea of the virtuous cycle is to win the right to communicate with your audience across as many different channels as possible. 
so that you can always be top of mind and that people get more information and really get to sink their teeth into your game to see if it's like right for them or not. Yeah. Right. So, so part of executing that strategy was I would keep a list of all my channels and it is a little annoying, but people have preferences. They, not everybody is going to be available in your favorite channel, right? So you do have to get into the, the, the Facebook groups, into Discord, into um, maybe not Twitter, but um, you know a little bit on Reddit. There's all these channels, so you, so you do have to adapt. And Board Game Geek, you're you you guys are crushing it on Board Game Geek. If not for those people allegedly stealing three hundred thousand dollars worth of Magic cards at Gen Con, you'd be number one, I think. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, I wish somebody would have stole all my products at Gen Con. Um, <laughs> a lot of free marketing. No, so I so I had a list of all the channels that I need to keep up with. So part of my virtual cycle was okay. I haven't reached out to the people in my Facebook group in a week. It's time, like they're due. I need to say something to them, even if it's just a little thing, so that they remember that we're alive, that this is something they thought was cool. Remind them that we exist, right? The same thing for uh, for, for all of the channels that we live on. Getting that that Mailchimp uh, email out to, to the email database. Not it's not necessarily the same people that you have in your Facebook group. There is some overlap, of course, and then uh, you know you can't communicate directly with the people on your Kickstarter notify me page, right? You don't have access to those people. You, you get access to them later, as I understand at the end of your campaign, when they send you um, all the emails of at least people who back the game. Do, do you get access to those other people who just, uh, not followers, but they do get an update. So they do get like, when you launch your campaign, everybody gets a notification, but for the most part, other than that, you don't get access to those people other than the final 48 hours, 24 hours, and eight hour reminders on Kickstarter. Mm. So that's really where it's, yeah. Because I've gotten a ton of new people since going live. I think we had 4,000 people who clicked notify me on launch. Mm. Uh, We've easily doubled that. We're we're approaching, I think, 9,000 or 10,000 now. So I'd love to get access to those people. But but yeah, it's unfortunate if if Kickstarter Mm. never shares those with you. Yeah, you know, one that's one benefit of GameFound over Kickstarter is that your um, all of your followers get um, your your notification your updates. So, mm-hmm. like when you send an update, GameFound will actually show you how much money you made from that update. People clicking mm-hmm. on the update, getting their pledges, or backing your game, or whatever, um, and they they can actually get involved with, I believe, comments and things like that too. Whereas um, Kickstarter is like, you know, more on the side of we're not going to let you talk in this in this uh, Kickstarter campaign unless you're a backer, right? Uh, right. So, and I guess and, and it's been to probably talk to death at this point of GameFound versus Kickstarter. But the, the reason we went with Kickstarter is, is just because uh, just because of the numbers, right? There, there's just an order of magnitude more people, especially for a new publisher, to yep. get eyes on this project. If we were established, uh, we'd probably consider GameFound. But uh, at this point, I think it doesn't it didn't make sense for us. Yeah. Yeah, GameFound is a little bit of a question mark with uh, with projects like like yours. Um, GameFound does an excellent job with big, chonky projects. So I don't think that it would have been a mistake to go to GameFound. But I mean, you know, Kickstarter is tried and true. It's it's like if you want to try to control as many variables as possible, then Kickstarter is the right platform to use. I, I would yes. say in the majority of cases yeah. and you know there have been many of our clients that have used GameFound recently you know like we just had planet unknown supermoon and they made a ton of money you know like eight hundred thousand dollars or more mm-hmm. um on GameFound, you know and i i told them to use kickstarter i said i think you guys should use kickstarter 
And they were like, no, you know, we thought about it. We're using GameFound. And um, at this point, I'm not, I'm plenty willing as, as like a marketing advisor to my clients. I'm plenty willing to like fight them on the things that really matter. But for me, it's just like a recommendation. It's not even a strong recommendation anymore. I do think that GameFound has its uh, pros that, that all, you know, and it, it has about half the organic traffic is Kickstarter at, at the moment from what I can tell, uh, which is a million and a half people a month specifically yeah. for the games category. And they're all into like chonky, heavy games. So whereas Kickstarter has, from my estimation, about 3 million um, yeah. unique visitors. So it's it's not like as cut and dry as it, as it used to be. Now, tell me about your mark. Like, what did you do organically? And what did you do that was paid for marketing? Well, so organic, we, we had a website. And when I started, I want to be clear, my my assets were prototype. Like my artwork, I, I didn't have the nice stuff that you see today when you go to the, the Ascendancy uh, Kickstarter page. Like I started five years ago. It looked completely different, but I knew it was important to just get something up there. It didn't have to be the final product. It's still the, the whole o- overarching concept I thought would still resonate with people, despite the fact that it looked relatively amateurish. So I, my advice to people would be like, don't wait to get started on this stuff. Like get your BGG page up, get your website up. Don't wait until you have like perfect art or assets or, or even everything. If it could even just be a, like one picture, right? Just get something up there to get the ball rolling, mm-hmm. and then you can iterate. Then you can improve it over time. So that that's how I started with the organic stuff. The paid stuff was a lot harder for me to learn because at this point I've spent a lot of hours trying to crack the code of Facebook paid ads. And when I reached out to you and Sean came and started to help me, it Everything got better. <laughs> Sean is very, very deliberate and meticulous with the way that he sets up the ads. And he's really able to adjust them on the fly. And I've tried to do this myself. And I like to think I, I'm, I'm a somewhat smart person. I, I still can't do what Sean does <laughs> for some reason. He's got some, some special uh, intuitive, uh, I guess he looks at these things all day and he's been doing it a long time. So I highly recommend working with a professional, if this is not something you want to really dedicate yourself to, because as good as I've learned how to do it myself, and and I can run some ads myself, I know enough to be dangerous. I'd highly recommend pay somebody to to do the paid ads, at least for a few months, just to really see what you might not be seeing. It's it's extremely valuable. I can't can't say that enough. There are two mindsets that I see dominantly in in our clients that uh, rather prospective clients as I talk with them and you know, kind of consult with them if, if if our services are right or if a different direction is better. In the end, we're quite busy, and I I in I really want our prospective clients to just get like the the best, be in the best position for themselves and moving forward. And sometimes that is, you know, where they they're like, hey, you know, I've got the time, I've got the motivation, I want to learn this, I want to learn these ads, and I want to kind of encourage them. And so we've we've actually made a product for that. We made we launched our course. I can um, you know help people get started like self started. We've got our system that I can kind of set ads up for them, and then they can take it from there after they get a professional setup. And then there's like our full managed ads. But the you know if you want to have that, if you've got like this baby that you've been working on for years and years, and it's a big expensive thing, and you've got one shot, and you know like the Eminem uh, "Lose Yourself" song, then it, it makes sense to have a professional 
take over. But when does the professional take over? When did you, how long have we been working on your marketing before your Kickstarter? When did you decide you needed somebody to do that? We started some years ago, but it's been on and off. So when uh, marketing is a, is a thing where it works great for a little while, I'm sorry, paid ads on Facebook, they work great for a while and then they, they trail off a bit. So you need new creative, you need new audiences. You always have to be massaging it and paying attention to it. Otherwise it's just going to trail off and your return on ad spend is not going to be profitable. So when we had a big major milestone where we, we revamped the game, we had a lot of new assets. Um, I would reach back out to you and Sean, and we would start them back up again and we would do some more marketing. Um, when we did the launch uh, last month, I knew I was going to have a million other tasks to focus on. I knew I did not want to spend my time on Facebook managing ads and, and tracking metrics. So that's why I reached out and said, Sean, can you please take these over um, so I don't have to do it? And thank God he had bandwidth to do it. So That's awesome. So this has been in my memory banks. You're one of our I will say, uh, you know, uh, many of our clients go on and off, you know, and when they have a major event, like their pledge managers launching or their crowdfunding campaigns launching, we'll go for a burst of like one to three months. And then we kind of let, let it, let it lay for a little while. And then when they release, we've got another burst of activity. But what I found interesting with your, with ascendancy was that we would market. And then, you know, when you had something new to share, and then we would kind of let it rest for a little while. And then you would have a bunch of new stuff and we'd share. And I was wondering about, there's something that is uh, probably true in your campaign that's not true of all others, which is related to like fatigue, audience fatigue. Mm -hmm. Did you have the experience of people that were really, really excited and then they kind of fell off or, or for me, I say sometimes they go to sleep. How was that, you know, in the end, did you feel like, you know, now that you've launched and seen the result, it's probably a lot, you know, easy, easier to say that it was worth it, but before you actually launched, uh, what what indicators did you have that it would that it was that what you were doing was good, or did you have any of those indicators? I don't know about the fatigue because uh, I I see you know names pop up in the comments and in the emails uh, who 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 are familiar, uh, others they they drop off. Uh, but to actually analyze it, I would love to do this at the end of the campaign to try to figure out. How many of our early people from five, four, three years ago stuck around and actually pledged in the end? I am looking forward to doing a deep dive on that so I can really drill down to how worthwhile was it to do marketing so far in advance? Because I don't know how sustainable it is for a company to, <laughs> to start a project if, you know, every five years. Probably, <laughs> probably not. Um, so to really do this, I, I would love to put out a new product every year, but if we have to release ascendancy first. I don't want to get us into a situation where, to quote you, um, you know, you're robbing Peter to pay Paul for your uh, for your future campaigns, right? So we want to make sure we do this right. But uh, yeah, I, I guess uh, I don't have a great metric or, or number really to share right now. You know, I I think like for me, it was as much about engagement in the groups as anything. I found that when I turn, you know, there are a lot of things that happen when when you run ads. There are metrics and numbers that you can see, and that's that's data or information. It's kind of can be confusing. It's like taking a, a Lego set, you know, pulling out all the all the pieces. That's data, and then information. Turning that data into information is like organizing all the pieces by color. It's like, all right, you've got the brown pieces and the red pieces and the white pieces and the blue pieces. But it's still what you really need is the story. You know, when you when you actually build that thing according to the instructions, you see the end result and you get the actual story. 
And so we're kind of in an interesting place where we've you've raised $330,000 or something at this point uh, so far. And then eventually in a, in a couple of weeks, you'll have, you know, after your campaign ends and you get your, your list of backers, you'll be able to compare those emails that subscribed and the pe- you know, when did they join on your email list and you know, how many did, you know, backed and everything. I actually did that for myself. Mm-hmm. I found that 16.7% of the backers that joined me in the months like before the three months leading up to launch. Like I, I really hit ads heavy three months uh, before launch. But for the people before that, 16.7% of the emails that jumped on the list backed the game mm-hmm. and they raised about $60,000 or they backed about 60K. And this is before the pledge manager. So I, I haven't looked actually to see what the total numbers are now that we're delivering. But um, that's higher than 10% by a lot. Right. Yeah, 16.7. But then you look at the three months leading up to launch, those people converted at a rate of 22.3% uh, to backers. And mm-hmm. they were also responsible for about $60,000 in sales. Mm-hmm. And I want to say that our email list was 4,400 um, about when we launched. And the first uh, 2,200 of those people were like the old school people that I had worked organically and you know done little ad bursts here and there. And then the other 2,200 were the 2,200 people that jumped on our email list three months before launch, you know, within three months of launch. Yeah. And um, so our conversion rate of people jumping on email list right before launch was a lot higher. But the people that were on the email list for longer, their average pledge was much higher. It was like $30 higher on average. And interesting. It was very interesting. Yeah. I'd be really excited and eager to see that if you want to. I'll definitely share it once I have those numbers. Yeah, that's very cool. So, um, what advice would you have for somebody that has their baby that is kind of going through maybe the design, development, iteration, and and whatnot? What advice would you have that that you know past you would have loved to hear, or that you knew past you needed to hear? Identify your weaknesses, play to your strengths, and. Whatever you have as a weakness, pay people who have that as their strength. So I'll give you an example. Um, I've always been a, a creative guy. I knew that coming up with, with worlds, with ideas, with, with storylines, I knew I could do that in my sleep. What I did not have are illustration skills. I clearly could identify this as a personal uh, drawback, weakness. So I knew I was going to have to pay people who had illustration as a strength. Graphic design, on the other hand, I had a feeling that I could learn that because when you have a giant game like Ascendancy or Deliverance, I think there's a daily, almost daily need to update cards, move things around. So I I forced myself to learn Photoshop, to learn Illustrator, most importantly, InDesign, because I knew this was going to be a regular thing for me. It was worth it for me to invest that time to really learn those tools to be able to do, do those things. Um, as a 45-year-old man learning how to draw at this point, I, I don't know if that's in the cards for me. <laughs> so, uh, so that's why I, I pay people for that. Regarding finding the artists, um, I'll say this. Finding and hiring artists is an easy thing to do. It, you go on ArtStation, it's literally the easiest thing in the world. What's very difficult, and I'll say almost impossible, is finding people who are, one, really good, two, available currently to work on your project, and three, reliable, will actually turn in the work when they say they're going to. So this combination 
in my experience, maybe your mileage differs, is super rare. And so when I found and, find, and continue to find artists like this, I consider them to be worth their weight in gold. Um, Ascendancy, we had four lead artists and one uh, lead graphic designer. And uh, in reality, I probably had five times that number of folks who just didn't work out for one reason or another. So when you find talent, like, you know, if, if that's not your skill set, if that's your weakness, like you need to hang on to those people for dear life and, yeah. and make sure that, that you, you pay them appropriately. Um, that is so one, true. <laughs> uh, one, one more thing I'll say is um, if you're a game designer, like it or not, um, you are the art director. So the challenge for me with having four different lead artists, it becomes challenging to have a unifying visual vision, like like style, right? This is an area where I'm still looking to to improve um, as an art director. I never thought of myself as having this job description, but that's really who you are um, if you're not doing all the art yourself. I know some designers do that, but if you have a big game, I don't think it's possible. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, it's so interesting that you say about the the artist. I I have we have um, two artists that worked on Deliverance that were consistent all the way through. I went through probably forty or fifty to try to find the one artist that was fantastic, and it was it was difficult. It was it was difficult. It's basically been his full time job for two years, you know, at, at, for Deliverance. It's it's just a big project and. You know, he's working on expansion content for us. And it's one way to get consistency is basically hire the guy, pay a full-time wage and go for it. Wasn't easy to do that at the beginning. But um, the the other the other artist that we found, uh, Yoan Boysenet. Uh, so there's Dan Maynard who did all our, all our um, art for angels and demons and that kind of thing. And then there's Yoan Boysenet who did all of our map tiles. He's our cartographer, you know, and... I found him from the back of the Lord of the Rings journeys in middle earth box. Mm. Like who did the map tiles for this? I really liked that and yeah. found them. You know, it's a, it's a project that, you know, when you, when you look at the back of a game box or in a rule book for the, for the artist of a game that you love, that's a great way to find an artist way. I, I wish I could have told myself that at the beginning. I mean, it kind of worked out for me and everything, but I would have put a lot more stock into the games that I really liked as far as their art. And I would have looked in those rule books, found those people and reached out to see if they would like to work on my project yeah. because those people were people who stuck through a, an entire project, got it done and, and all in regard to like you being the art director. I think that a lot of games, especially a lot of games like yours, they really live and die on their visuals. They are that the theme is heavy and needs to get communicated across every element would would you say that like your attention to detail for every single element like is there anything that that you experienced kind of in graphic design when the graphic design was off because of a you know just getting it done quick um what did what was your experience like there you know you've got was it just like a lot of work to get the graphic art uh, design done right or was it not that big of a deal it was a huge deal because the the art is the game and this industry is fueled by talent. And without that visual arts talent, if that's not part, if that's not a piece, a significant piece of your project, I, I don't see how it can be a big success. I think you can have a modest project without it, but if you're trying to do something big on Kickstarter, it's a visual medium. And uh, it, it's just, 
I would say it might be, it's the second most important thing. I think the marketing is the most important thing, but the mark, the art is the marketing. So you have to keep in mind every asset that you commission, uh, every piece that becomes your marketing material. So I was always thinking in my head, like if I design this mechanic, I'm going to need or have this kind of artwork. How is that going to ultimately present itself on my Kickstarter page? Because that's the finish line. That Kickstarter page is your pitch. That's what people ultimately will see. And that's what you need to be working towards 100% of the time is that's what it comes down to. They're either going to pledge your project or they're not based on what they see visually on your page. And that's your art assets. So when I was doing the graphic design, when I was art directing the illustrations, um, I always had this in mind with the end in mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's important to just keep that roadmap when you're designing the game. You need to consider all these things as you're designing it, because if there's a mechanic that's going to be very hard to explain visually or present to backers down the line, I feel like almost it might as well not exist because okay. it's not going to be presented as a benefit or something that they can care about if they can't understand it. Right. It's like uh, all the line of sight rules that people talk about, you know, oh, is the center of this square you know, is it in visual range of the center of that square? And I, I mean, that, that type of conversation, it's like, all that's going to do is just force your backer to look in the rule book and pour yeah. of the rule book instead of actually playing the game, you know, something that is sensible, you know, that is easily communicated by the design is, uh, is so there's something so beautiful about that simplicity, you know, so that I can actually, you know, I, it's easy when you're a video game, you've got a computer to tell you, Right. But as a player, you've got to, you got your brain, which can only hold five to nine things at any given time, as far as ongoing bits of information that you need to remember. And the great graphic design can help you kind of not have to remember rules like that. Absolutely. So, yeah. so um, I'd love to spend more time talking about all the things, but I know uh, we're running up on time. And before we go, uh, how, you know, how can people find Ascendancy? I know right now you're on Kickstarter, but um, so tell us about that, but then also tell us about where, where else can we find it in case, you know, your Kickstarter is ended by the time somebody reads this. Yeah. Well, well, we're everywhere. So of course you can check out the game Ascendancy on Kickstarter. You can check out the website, ascendancy4x.com where we're heavy on our discord. So come stop by our discord. Uh, we've got a Royal advisor who, who makes fun of people in the chat. We've got, um, We've got a you know board game geek. Uh, if you visit us there, we're very active on the forums. So anyway, you'd like to engage us if it sounds cool. You know, we'd love for you to come uh, come hang out with us. That's excellent. Well, Matthew, it's been a real pleasure getting to talk to you on our podcast for the first time. I certainly hope it's not the last time. Good luck on the rest of your Kickstarter and uh, everything else you got going on. Thank you so much for having me. It's been awesome. All right. Okay, Robot Richard, send us out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.